Well, good morning again. Happy Pentecost Sunday. Fifty days after the Passover, the Spirit of God came upon the early church members and they were filled with the Spirit. So I'm not going to be speaking necessarily on that theme, but uh, we know then the kingdom of God came in great power. And so we're going to talk about thy kingdom come this morning. I'm going to have us turn in our Bibles to Psalm 26. We're going to read that together. And while you're turning there, uh, let me just make uh, an appeal to you. We're going to have a, a special interest meeting on June the 13th on a Tuesday night. If you're not able to make it, let me know that you're still interested. We're looking at trying to support uh, a refugee family coming from another part of the world. These people who uh, converted to Christianity under great persecution. They fled their home nation. If they go back, they'll be killed and executed. Uh, where they're living currently in the country of India, they're still under great persecution. They've been beaten and threatened. And so they are hoping and praying that God will provide a way of escape. And so, if, you know, if we can get some people that are willing to commit, um, we're not going to make you all commit financially. We want you to just, we need some people to say, yeah, we're going to do our part and we're going to receive an offering. I believe we can raise the monies all through the congregation to support this family for one year. Then after that, they'll be able to support themselves. So uh, pray about it, and if you have an interest, even if you come to the meeting, that doesn't mean you're, you're committing to it. It just means you're discovering more about it. And I'll read the, a little bit of the case history. I think if you hear their story, you'll be deeply moved, and you'll want to do something about it. So uh, jot that down on your calendar. June 13th, it's a Tuesday night at 7 p.m. All right, let's uh, stand as we read from Psalm 26 together. <clears throat> going to reflect our uh, message this morning from the book of Revelation. Psalm 26. Vindicate me, Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord, and I have not faltered. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. For I have always been mindful of your unfailing love, and have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. I do not sit with the deceitful, nor do I associate with hypocrites, I abhor the assembly of evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go about your altar, Lord, proclaiming aloud your praise and telling of all your wonderful deeds. Lord, I love the house where you live, the place where your glory dwells. Do not take away my soul along with sinners, my life with those who are bloodthirsty, in whose hands are wicked schemes whose right hands are full of bribes. I lead a blameless life. Deliver me and be merciful to me. My feet stand on level ground. In the great congregation, I will praise the Lord. Father, we hear the plea of your servant, Lord, to find vindication, to find affirmation from you, Lord. I pray today as we look at our world with all of its uh, unsettledness, and evil, and injustice, and pain, and strife, and conflict. Lord, I pray today that we will not succumb to fear, Lord, but that we will live by faith, that we will see that there is a divine one who is controlling all, that you are sovereign over the affairs of men. And Lord, we can walk by faith, we can walk in the Spirit, we don't have to walk by sight, but we walk in a quiet confidence that your kingdom 
has come, that your kingdom is coming and that your kingdom is here. And so, Lord, I pray today as we understand these concepts, Lord, from the book of Revelation, give us clarity and insight in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen, amen. I'm going to have you turn to Revelation chapter 6. You may want to take some notes. We're going to look at some stuff and you may not have thought about these things before. A lot of us in this room maybe have been taught different schematics of how Revelation plays out, but I just want you to have an open mind as we share today. In, in 2003, Dan Brown wrote a book that caused confusion in many people's mind. It became a bestseller. The book was entitled Da, Vinci, da Vinci's Code. It was so popular that a movie followed and it was challenging the historical understanding of the gospel and the history of the early church. Its popularity spread to such an extent that it became a worldwide bestseller and as of 2009 has sold more than 80 million copies. It's pretty impressive. And it has been translated into 44 language. It has influenced people's thinking. However, as you read the book, your understanding of the genre begins to shape the way you're going to understand the material in the book. Now, if it's taken as it is, it's a novel and it's fiction, which means not true. Okay, fiction means not true. How many know that from the library? We all learned that hopefully in school. Uh, it's a fabrication. However, many people reading the book may think, yeah, I'm reading fiction, but the theory is probably true then they embrace that theory as truth. They're embracing fabrication as if it's the truth. As a matter of fact, if, if Dan Brown wrote the book as a nonfiction, he wouldn't have survived. I mean, most scholars could so quickly eat up that book and tear it apart in no time flat. And some even did that because they recognized how gullible many people are. But you know, some people would rather believe a lie than embrace the truth. So what I'm trying to bring attention to this morning is the, is, the, is the necessity of having a proper understanding of literary genre. Now, we rarely think about that. We kind of do it automatically. And, and also, we have a system in our culture that helps us understand genre. You go to the library and you see you know, different books in different areas. There's fiction, nonfiction. We know what poetry looks like, biography, science fiction, westerns. You know, we can go on and on and talk about all these subgenres and all the rest of it. But what happens is, when we get to the book of Revelation, I don't know about you, but I've been a Christian 42 years, and to me, it's one of the most confusing books because of all the stuff that's been written on it. How many can say amen to that? And when you read the book, you say to yourself, what in the world is going on? How many have had a little bit of perplexity over the book of Revelation? Raise your hand. Wow, we got a lot of honest people here today. Okay, so we're going to look at it, and, I, and I'm going to just bring out some things that hopefully will help you to to realize the purpose of the book. Now, here's, here's what's funny about it. The book of Revelation is meant to bring understanding. <laughs> it's, it's just true. It's its purpose. You know, and when you read Revelation 1.1, it says it right there, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So God wants to make something known to people, and yet most of us are walking around in a haze over the book. We're just like confused, like what in the world is happening here? And, and so what I think we need to understand is that this book was designed to bring hope and comfort 
to a church that was beginning and small and under persecution compared to all of the powers that be above them, that they were to understand that things are not what they appear to be on earth. There's two ways of looking at life, and you and I need to see life from two vantage points. One is a divine vantage point, which helps understand what's happening on the planet. So some have taken that statement, what must soon take place to believe the book was primarily fulfilled in the first century. So we have a whole group of scholars who are preterists, and they believe that everything that the book Revelation talked about happened when Jerusalem fell in 70 AD. So you have that whole argument. I've read all these arguments, by the way, so, you know, it's interesting. And then you have others who see the majority of the book being played out throughout history, and then there's some who see the book as primarily being played out at the end of time in a brief period of time, okay? And if you come with a, a preconceived grid this morning, I'm not trying to destroy your grid, okay? So don't get upset with me. What I'm trying to do is help you just look at the book and understand its genre. So what, you know, the Greek word for the word revelation is the word apocalypse. That's the Greek word, apocalypse. It's translated revelation. And New Testament scholar Leon Morris explains the meaning of apocalypse. He says the word means the uncovering of something that is hidden. The making known of what we could not find out for ourselves. So in other words, we would never know the stuff unless God revealed it and exposed it to us. So these are hidden things that God is now bringing to light. How many appreciate you're going to get an inside look on what's happening in the world because God is showing you? That's what this book is meant to do. Okay, the other thing we need to understand is that it's a word of prophecy. So now we have two genres in play, apocalyptic and prophetic. And we're going to put the two together. So Revelation 1-3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So that's where I get the other genre from. So the book itself is giving us the clue as to which uh, is literary genre. It says it's apocalyptic and it says it's prophetic. Okay, how many see it? Everybody see it? Okay, I'm not, no sleight of hands. I'm not, there's no card trick here. I'm just showing you there's these two genre. Okay, now when we grasp that, it's not a gospel. It's not theological history. It's not primarily an epistle with instructions to the churches. Though we see the first three chapters, there are instructions to seven churches. What we have communicated is both prophetic and apocalyptic in nature. So what does that mean for us? What, is, what do these things mean? Uh, well, the first aspect of the text is apocalyptic. And there's a lot of literature, and I actually read books on apocalyptic genre. Okay, so I'm not just quoting somebody. No, I've read these things. Because I wanted to understand what is apocalyptic literature. How many think if you're going to try to understand a genre, maybe you better read about it? So I did a little research on it. D.S. Russell wrote extensively on the subject, and he said that this literature came into being after the Jewish exile, when the nation of Israel was struggling with foreign domination. Once Israel came back from the, uh, to the promised land after the exile, do you realize she was literally under the foreign domination for the most part? Greeks, then Romans. And so there was a frustration. 
And so, you know, and a lot of times, even though they had political aspirations to be free and liberated, the reality was they were rarely free and liberated. There was a few moments of the Hasmeans, but generally speaking, they were under foreign domination. And so they did not see a political solution to the crisis and the tyranny that they were experiencing by foreign domination. How many know that when you're oppressed, it's a terrible place to be? How many, we don't even hardly appreciate it because we've enjoyed freedom for most of our existence. But can you imagine living in a nation where you've never had freedom? You know, I was just listening to a little YouTube clip yesterday of a little girl from North Korea and the weeping and explaining what was going on and how she was appealing to the West to stand up for a people that was under tremendous oppression and tyranny. Well, the apocalyptic literature, he says, is essentially a literature of people who saw no hope for their nation simply in terms of politics or of the, or, or, or of the plane of history. The battle they were fighting was on a spiritual level against spiritual powers of wickedness in high places. And so they were compelled to look beyond history to the dramatic and miraculous intervention of God who would set to rights the injustices done to his people. So that's giving you a little idea of this genre. In other words, this this, uh, literature is designed to help you understand that there's, there's going to be symbols and language and communication to bring hope to a people that cannot find hope in the normal, natural ways. They have to look beyond this world. They have to look to God. And, you know, I don't think that's always a bad thing that you have to look to God. I think that's a good thing. Russell then defines apocalyptic is often described as a literature of despair, but with equal appropriateness, it could be described as a literature of hope. God would vindicate his people once and for all and bring to its consummation his purposes and plan for all ages. So what, what the book of Revelation is really designed to do, this I'm going to just summarize it, is that God wants to answer the question of evil once and for all. How many would like to say, you know, I get so tired of all this evil in the world, this injustice, you know, this terror, this tyranny. How many say, I'd like to see, you know, good finally win out. Anybody have that feeling? Well, this book is designed to make you feel hopeful that in the end, the good guys win, you know? I have to confess this about myself. You know, I'm, I'm a big Louis L'Amour fan. You go, you go, Pastor, that's, that's pretty fluffy reading. You know what I like about the books, though? He's a Western writer for you that don't know. The good guys always win in the end. And the bad guys always get their just desserts. And there's something about justice eventually prevailing is kind of a happy ending for me. You know, it's like to see the, you know, finally. But in life, it's not always that way. How many know that's true? Sometimes the good guys lose and the bad guys win. And we're, we're frustrated with the way things are turning out. Well, the book of Revelation is a book designed to bring hope to us that ultimately good will prevail over evil. How many like that? You know, we want a good ending. This book is going to give us a good ending. Now, let me move on to the second aspect of this literature, and that's prophecy. And Earl Palmer says this, Such writing, which is theological, evangelistic, and ethical by nature, intends to call people to repentance. So how many know the prophets, when you read the prophetic books in the Bible, the prophets, they're always calling people to change their mind, turn back to God, get in right step with God, stop violating God's covenant, right? And so it's a call to repentance. It's a call to live right. And so this book has that same appeal to it. And then he summarizes the two genres this way. He says, The prophetic message emphasizes the decision-making freedom of the people before God 
whereas the apocalyptic message emphasizes the freedom of God. In other words, God's going to do this stuff. He's, it's going to happen anyways, folks. So you and I can say what we want, do what we want, but in the end, God's going to have good triumph over evil. That's God's ultimate purpose. And now when we look at the book that way, let's take it. So, so what, what does it mean for us now to understand this book? It means that we're going to be exposed to symbolic language. And the purpose is to show us the kingdom of God in the past, in the moment, and in the future. We need to understand the kingdom of God has come, is here, and will come. There's something about it. You know, we're experiencing God's kingdom. And so I've entitled the sermon, Thy Kingdom Come. And how many recognize that's the prayer we pray if we're praying the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come. But when the kingdom of God comes, something happens. You know, some people embrace it. Yes, finally, I'm hearing the good news. I can be set free from my sins. Yes, I repent. I, I turn my heart to you, Jesus. I'm, I'm going to stop being a rebel, right? But how many know a lot of people resist the kingdom of God? Anybody notice that? And as the kingdom of God comes in power, there's a great pushback. And we see that in this book, there's not only the kingdom of God advancing, but the kingdom of darkness fighting against the kingdom of God. And we see that in the book. So we've already looked at chapters 4 and 5, the picture of heaven where worship before God is being expressed. That What is introduced there is a scroll that's about to reveal the purposes of God. And that's where we're turning to right now, chapter 6. And I was reading Daryl Johnson. He said, this is where all the preachers stop preaching. <laughs> but this one is crazy, so he's going forward. I'm either crazy or courageous. But I'm going to move forward because I think I want us to help understand this book possibly in a healthier way than maybe we have in the past. Now, first of all, the scroll is sealed with seven seals. Now, you know the number seven is a symbolic number. And seven speaks of completion. It speaks of finality. It speaks of, there's nothing more you can add to this, okay? So we're going to take a look at the scroll. This is God's purposes now for all of humanity being unfolded. And the problem is, no one can open the scroll. And we pick up that in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 4. And he's, John's there and he, he sees that no one's able to open the scroll. And he says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So now we know that the lion of the tribe of Judah is Jesus because he was a descendant of David who was from the tribe of Judah. So he's called the lion. And why is he called the lion? Because the lion is, a, is an animal that represents kingliness, right? He's the king of the jungle. A lion is a terrific, powerful, ferocious beast. And it's interesting that most nations like to have certain creatures or animals to depict their power and glory. And like Russia picks the bear, you know. Uh, the United States picks an eagle. England picks a lion. What are all these creatures have in common is that they are powerful, dynamic creatures, right? So watch what happens here in this, this, this unfolding. It says, hey, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, here's where it gets interesting. So John now hears this, but then it says, then I saw a lamb. Now, how many know he's just been told that it's the lion who's triumphed, and he looks for the lion, and what does he see? A lamb. 
Now, how many go, that sounds, seems inconsistent, Pastor? Well, no, but it's because now we're going to see how the lion actually conquers. And it says here, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Wow, this is a very powerful interpretive key to the book. Because throughout the book, you have the lamb. You have the lion, you have the lamb. We sing about it, the lion and the lamb, right? We're singing the song. A lot of us don't even know what we're singing. Well, it's because they're figurative, metaphorical expressions. They're symbolic of who Jesus Christ is. He's all-powerful. He's a lion. But the reason why he can do these things is because he's a lamb that was slain. In other words, he's, he's sacrificed. And because Jesus sacrificed on our behalf, because he became a sacrifice, you and I have an, a relationship with Almighty God. Then I saw a lamb looking as it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. So where is the lamb? He's on the throne. Encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The, li- the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes. Okay, now, all of us literalists here, we're going to have a problem with this, you know, because we always picture most creatures have two eyes, some have a few more, but man, this lamb has seven eyes. No, it's not about literalistic understanding, it's about understanding what he's getting at. And as we look at this, the seven horns, what do horns speak of? Is power and authority, kingly power and authority, and the eyes actually speak of Christ's ability to see and know all things. He completely knows everything. Isn't that, is, how many think that's kind of comforting that he's all-powerful and he knows everything? Why can he do that? Because he's God Almighty. This is the great assurance that we have, that the Lamb who was slain is God himself. He's ruling, he's reigning from a throne, and he knows everything, and he has all power. How many say, thank God, Someone like that is ruling the universe. Boy, am I, am I ever thankful for the fact that the lamb that was slain is ruling the universe. It says here, uh, you know, the lamb is actually a very dependent creature, you know, and he's gentle. And so we get the idea that God is not only, in one sense, he can be, he can be terrifying if he comes to you as a lion, but if he comes to you as a lamb that was slain, that's, that's a pretty non-threatening creature, right? And so often when God comes to humanity, he comes to us in gentleness. Aren't you glad for that? But he can come to us as a lion, as we're about to see. So here in chapter 6, we're going to find three outcomes of the kingdom of God on the past, present, and future history of humanity. And the first one is the misery of a world in rebellion to God. And so the first four seals are going to depict this idea, you know. How many know that it's human greed, ambition, power, and abuse that have caused enslavement and poverty and famine and strife and death and ultimately hell to ravage our planet? You know, we, we, blame, we blame all kinds of things for these things, but let's just admit it. It's humanity. We're doing it to ourselves. It's our, it's our fallen nature. It's, it's the extremes in our lives. And, you know, we're, we're creating the havoc in our planet. We're the ones that are abusing our planet environmentally. We're the ones that abuse people, right? Come on, we're exploiting people. On and on it goes. The strong exploit the weak. The rich exploit the poor. We can go on and on. So often, that's the way it is. And so left to ourselves, what we can anticipate is these six seals beginning to unfold. And they're represented here by the first four seals are represented by the four horsemen and they're entitled the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And so we have another number, another symbolic number, four. And what is four representative of? 
Well, the four elements of the world, the four corners of the earth. What is that talking about? It's, it represents everything. It represents the entire cosmos. Okay, so now we see the first seal here is going to be a rider on a white horse, and he's going out to conquer. Look at verse 1. I watched as the Lamb, the Lamb is the one, opening the, the first of the seven seals. And then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a loud voice like thunder, Come. Now, I want to stop here and say something. When you look at a scroll and you look at seals, if you only opened up one, you probably couldn't open up the scroll. But this, that's why this is all symbolic. It's not so much a literal thing. He's just showing you uh, the beginning part of the scroll, the beginning vision. So then he says here, come. Who is he calling to? He's calling to the first rider. Yeah, I don't think he's calling to John here. It says, I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. Now, let's stop here. When you read in the Old Testament, the bow is symbolic of military might. The bow, bow and arrow. Okay? And so he's saying that this person, this person, the rider riding the white horse, is speaking of a conqueror. He's speaking of conquest. And I want you to notice here the, the, the way it's stated. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown. So I'm going to make the argument, number one, that it's God himself who gives uh, conquerors the ability to conquer. They wouldn't do it unless God allowed it, is what I'm getting at. God is still in control. Now, some commentators would say that this rider is Jesus because he's riding on a white horse, okay? And the reason they come up with that ideology is because in chapter 19, we again read that Jesus is coming back and he's riding on a white horse. But let's not go there. I don't believe this is Jesus. I believe that the imagery is actually what the image of a white horse symbolizes. And the white horse really symbolizes victory. Because the color white doesn't just symbolize purity, it symbolizes victory. So when Jesus comes back on a white horse in chapter 19, it's speaking of his victory. And so here, we're looking at the victory of nations over time who God has allowed to conquer and reign over humanity. The point I'm trying to get across here is this crown was given by God. Everybody see that? Okay, now what happens as a result of, uh, well, let me just go this. Daryl Johnson, I think, rightly says this. This is crucial to observe. Evil is not in charge. Evil is not on the throne. Okay, it has a time life. It has a shelf life. Read the book of Daniel. These kingdoms came and they came, kingdoms went. There's only one kingdom that will last forever. And that's the kingdom of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. All the other kingdoms that arise, they're going to go down. Okay? Now, Evil can only operate because God allows it. So the question that comes to all of our minds is, why does God allow evil? I'm so glad you asked that question, because I know it's all in your mind. Well, God hinders it, God defeats it, but there's times when God gives us as human beings over to what we desire. He says, okay, you want that? Here, go for it. And he allows the consequences of human greed and ambition to bring about destruction to ourselves, and it even impacts the lives of others. Sad. We need to notice that it's Christ who's holding conquest at bay in our world. I'm so glad for that. It could be a lot worse, guys. You know, God is holding them back. He is the one that allows the measure of peace that we're experiencing today in our world. It's God that's doing that. 
We should be getting on our knees every day. Thank you, Lord, for the measure of peace that we're experiencing. Because if sinful humanity was left unchecked, we'd have raging war all over the world. We'd have all kinds of problems. We'd even have it in a greater degree even here in North America. Leon Morrison gives us this insight. It may well be... um, So then why does God release these writers? Well, Leon Morrison says, it may well be that we're to understand Christ's saving work as including an element of judgment. Christ's death was not only salvation from sin, but condemnation of sin. Okay? And so if you and I reject God's provision of of forgiveness and salvation from our sins, then the consequence to sin is what? The wages of sin is what? It's death. Okay. The second rider is on a fiery red horse, and he's removing peace. Look at verse 3. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. So him, to him was given a large sword. So when we remove the Prince of Peace from the equation of our lives, we can begin to anticipate conflict. Isn't that true? How many know that when you're not walking right with God, you have more conflicted relationships going on in your life? How many know that's true? You know, to the degree that I'm not yielding to the Prince of Peace, to the degree the sword comes into relationships. Wow. You know, when we remove... Uh, well, I think the distinction between the first and second writer is the possibility that the second rider is removing peace. And so what's happening is there's conflict. But the conflict is not so much conquestual conflict as it is civil conflict. And how many know civil wars are actually some of the most brutal conflicts? You know that's true? How many know that when, when spouses fight with each other, you know, where they before they loved each other, and now love is turned to hate? Isn't that the most brutal situations going? And the hatred can be sometimes as intense as the love was at the beginning. We're getting really quiet in this room. See, I'm bringing application in here. You know, and actually the word killed here, they, to make people kill each other, that's a common, that's a, an interpretive choice by the translator. That word killed, there should be slaughtered. That's the literal Greek word. They began to slaughter each other. That's pretty, how many think that's kind of a malicious, brutal term? That gives a totally different imagery. You know, if you kill somebody, it could be clean. But this is actually slaughtering people. And that's the picture we need to see here. And then the third rider is on a black horse. And um, he's, he's carrying scales. Verse 5, when the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I, I looked, and there before me was a black horse. His rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures say, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, already now we're having restrictions as to what's going on here. Really, the scale is actually the measurement of the kind of food and the cost of food, and it's actually explaining the price of inflation. It's explaining the law of supply and demand, the pure economics. And how many know if you, if you don't have a lot of uh, food product, the price of food rises? How many know that's the way it works? I've studied economics in university, supply and demand. And so if you have a great supply, you have you know, low demand, the prices go down. But if you have high demand and low supply, the prices go up. And this is what you're seeing here. That this is what he's, what he's basically showing you is that there's scarcity now in the essence of just trying to, make, to, to be able to eat. And who is most affected by uh, wars are, 
is the food supply. Armies come in, they ravage the land, they eat the food. There's usually what's left behind is a time of famine. And if you study history carefully, you'll see that that's what happens. And this is what's happening here. And, you know, and then the rich people here seem unaffected because the oil and the wine is not touched. So the rich are okay, but it's the poor people that are suffering. And by the way, you know, if we don't think this is happening, you know, like some people say, well, that's going to happen in the future. You know what's happening right now? Do you guys know that? We're the rich. In North America, Europe, we're the rich. There are people right now in Africa, we are experiencing the greatest famine in the world right now at this time. There are more people dying of starvation today than ever before. How many knew that? You actually knew that, some of you. Okay. Isn't that amazing? You know, so we're seeing some of these things happening right now. So we're reading the story here as if we're disconnected from it. But just because it's symbolic, it's still happening. And we're seeing it happen. We're watching. We're a witness to what's going on here. And then we come to the fourth rider, and he's on a pale horse. And the final rider, his name is Death, and Hades is following close behind him. Verse 7, When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. His rider was named Death. And Hades was following close behind him, and they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, you and I read that, and it doesn't do anything for us. But if I'm a Jewish person living in the first century, and I know my Old Testament, immediately light bulbs go off. You go, why did they go off? Because when you read the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel in the book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy, you realize that God said, hey, listen, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you guys prosper. You're going to be the head and not the tail. How many have read these things? And you're reading the blessings in the Old Testament of what God says happens when you walk in obedience to his covenant. Look at what he, But if you disobey God's covenant, listen to what it says. And if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring on you such terror wasting disease and fever, and I will send wild animals against you, and they'll rob you of your children, and I will bring the sword on you to avenge the breaking of the covenant, and you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. Doesn't that sound like famine? It does to me. Wow. And then if you think that this never happened, see, that was said way back in Moses' day, but then fast forward all the way up to the time when the, the nation's now a monarchy and they've rebelled against God and the prophets are speaking. And here's what Ezekiel says to them, just on the verge of collapse. He says this, For this is what the Sovereign Lord says in Ezekiel 14.21, How much worse will it be when I send against Jerusalem my four dreadful judgments, sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague, to kill its men and their animals? Is that, is that a little intense? Are we getting any sense that, you know, God is really the one that's operating this planet and he actually is very careful to spell what he's going to do out and he actually communicates to people and when we don't listen to what he's saying, you know, we experience the negative consequences of it. So I think it's important we understand these things. Okay, let me move on here to the second point. And it's simply the martyrdom of the people of God. You know, how many know God's people have always suffered at the hands of evil? And I know that if you're a futurist in your interpretation, and, you know, here's, here's one of the, 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 the ideas. And this is how come we can actually live at peace sometimes. We say, well, you know, 
All of what you're talking about, Pastor, is going to happen in the Great Tribulation, and we're going to be taken up in the rapture, so none of this is going to befall us. You see, that's, that's one way of interpreting this. But let's just keep reading as if that may not be correct, okay? Let's just keep reading this and see what it says, and then you're going to get a little feeling for it. You know, Revelation 6, 9 says, And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they maintained. And they called out with a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Now, there's a number of things that strike me about this text. Okay? Uh, how many know that we all understand that martyrdom is a part of life? It's happening right now in our world. You know? Actually, I'm going to sh- share a thought with you that may shake you up or it may just say, oh yeah, I knew that. Here it is. The word for witness and martyr is the same word. It's the same word. How many think that's strange? What are we called to be? We're called to be witnesses, which means we're called to be martyrs. You guys are all looking at me. Hey, wait a minute, Pastor. Whoa, I didn't sign up for this. You know, yeah, you did. You gave your life to Christ. You gave up your right to your life. You see, I think the problem in the North American church is we think I'm taking God on my terms. You can't have God on your terms. You can only have God on his terms. Well, there was a few of you that said, yeah, that's right, Pastor. The rest of you are just living in la-la land. You're, you're self-deceived. If you think that you can live this Christian life, and when you don't like something, you just exit out of the contract, it doesn't work this way. How many know when you sign a contract, there's all these words inside this contract, and sometimes you get into things, and you go, well, I didn't realize I was getting into that. How many have had that experience? There's a lot more to a contract. Listen, you made a covenant with God. God says, here's what I'm going to do for you. You said, awesome, I love it. Sign me up. God says, here's what I expect of you. Well, I don't like that part. Right? Yeah. So, that's what we need to understand. Now, this is not always going to be physical death. Sometimes it's just death to ourself and to our selfishness and to our self-life and to our personal agendas. And we're saying, it's not what I want, it's what you want, God. And I would to God that most of us would get up and say, Lord, your will be done today, not my will. You know, and if we started living out the will of God, we'd have a greater impact in our culture. We would be bringing the kingdom of God. We'd be answering our own prayer. Thy kingdom come. How does it come? As you and I surrender to his will. See, it says it in the Lord's prayer. Thy will be done. And that means my will becomes your will, Lord, and I do what you want me to do. The question of justice now is being raised here. How many see that? Because people are dying. They're saying, hey, This is unfair. We shouldn't have died here. We were in the right. Now they're killing us. So the question is of justice. How long before God will bring about justice for life's injustices? How many think that's a good question? Anybody ever ask that question? How long is this going to go on? I, I feel like I'm getting a raw deal. Anybody? I'm personalizing it now. But isn't that true? It seems to be a contradiction, this prayer of Jesus and Philip, who said, Father, forgive them. Here are these guys, they're praying, God, how long is this going to go on? I love what Robert Wall writes. He says, the martyr's cry of vindication frames their concern for theodicy. 
which really means, why does God allow evil? And the date of the resolution. When will a sovereign Lord whose powerful mercy is disclosed in the slain and risen Lamb vindicate God's reign publicly as holy and true? That's a great statement. In other words, when is God going to show all of humanity they're wrong and he's right? You see? And then the next question. No doubt some readers of Revelation are facing a situation similar to that described by Second Peter in which they, the delay of Christ's return prompted their opponents to scoff and ridicule Christ's hope, the Christian hope in Christ's return. And what was Peter's answer? He said, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness and steadies patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's holding out to bring people into his kingdom. Leon Morris answers it this way. We must see it in the light of John's interest in the theology of power. It's not a plea against individuals, but a call for the reversal of the world's uh, judgment on God's people. The cry is intelligible only on the basis that the supreme power in the world is God's power and that he exercises it in a moral way. So here in our context, we're given the response. Each of them, we're going to be given a white robe. What did I say about white? You always think about it as purity. I'm telling you it's also about victory. He said, no, you guys have the victory. I'm giving you a white robe. You have overcome. You are, you know, earthly life, though precious, is not ultimate life. There is eternal life. These guys have overcome. How did Jesus overcome the world? As a lion or as a lamb that was slain? As a lamb that was slain. How do we overcome evil? As the lamb that was slain. How do we overcome injustice? As the lamb that was slain. What does it mean? It means we die. A lot of us go, I don't want to die, Pastor. I want to win. No. Sometimes winning, you lose. And sometimes when you're losing, you're actually winning. It's counterintuitive. It's the opposite of the way people think. You and I lay down our rights. Yes, we have a right. People say, yeah, but they're going to walk over us. No, they're not. You're choosing to lay down your right. You're becoming like Christ. How many know it takes strength to lay down rights? It takes more strength to lay down your rights than it is to advocate for your rights. Our whole culture is rights-oriented. We're all picketing and striking and screaming and yelling and crying. And here's some people, they're just laying aside their rights. Now we're becoming like Christ. Hmm. How did they triumph? Look at later on. Um, it says here, they triumphed over him, Revelation 12, 11, by what? The blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. See? It's teaching us a principle. We need to understand how the kingdom of God comes. How we overcome and prevail is by laying down our lives and laying down our rights. And then they were told to wait a little longer. They were given a robe and said, hey, hang on. So the martyrs are to wait a little longer. The verb wait may mean to be quiet a little while longer or to rest in blessedness. God waits and the number of martyrs grows to its completion. How many know right now that we've had more martyrs in the 20th century, this last century, than we had in all previous 19 centuries put together. So for all of those people, you know, 
that don't believe that there's going to be martyrs. God doesn't seem to be rescuing people from martyrdom. How many catch on? But actually, it shows you that this life isn't the only life there is. But some of us live as if it is, when we should be thinking about the life to come. Okay. But the final, I love this, destruction of evil is certain. It is not a question of whether evil will be overcome, but when. And it will be. Let me move to my last point. And that's simply the multitudes in rebellion against God. The final outcome of God's kingdom coming is that multitudes will still be in rebellion against God. So here's what happens on the day of the Lord. Now I want to explain something, that term, day of the Lord. The day of the Lord means the day of God's judgment. Every time you read it in the Bible, the day of God's judgment. Now, the day of the Lord is going to be an ultimate day of the Lord when, when humanity comes to an when the history that we know it comes to an end. But how many know there's been days of the Lord before that? And there's been people experiencing judgment all along. And we don't want to hear about judgment, Pastor. It's, you know, it freaks me out. I'm going, it's in the Bible. And you and I better understand it because God is dealing with sin all the time and judgment is happening all the time. So let's... Um, you know, get a hold of it. It's a day of catastrophic crisis. You know, how many know when Jerusalem was being crushed in 70 AD? That was a day of the Lord for Jerusalem. Jesus wept over the city. He saw that day coming. He called it the day of the Lord, and they were destroyed, folks. And I've read the account. How many have read the account by Josephus on that destruction? Oh, Len and myself. Okay. Anybody else? Okay, you guys need to read a little more widely. It's pretty brutal, isn't it, Len? It's terrible. So if you think God's just going to not deal with things, you know, when we reject God, there's an, out, there's, a, there's an outcome, and it's not nice. It's a day of catastrophic crisis. Look at verses 6, 12 to 14. I watched as they opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. I'm going to stop right here. You know all this blood red moon stuff? How many have ever heard all this stuff? It's all nonsense. Just write that down. Pure nonsense. This is symbolic language. It's apocalyptic. I don't anticipate the moon dripping blood on earth. I don't even think it's going to turn that color either. Okay. The stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by strong wind. The heavens recede like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Well, if that all happened, then the next verses wouldn't make sense. Then people are crying, let the mountain rocks fall on top of us. No, it's an apocalyptic language. It's symbolic. When you read the Old Testament, these Jewish people knew this. This language is coming out of the Old Testament. When you read of the heavens falling apart, what he's basically saying is this is a a catastrophic crisis. That's the way they describe it. Okay? Okay, some of you go, I don't believe it's, I believe it's literal. No, I believe it's symbolic. And it makes way more sense to take it that way. And so you don't get all these fanciful and nonsense ideas out there. That's what I think they are. Okay, so what happens in Revelation 6.15? Then it says, Then the kings of the earth... Well, hey, listen. If every mountain and island was rolled up from its place, if the heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, how in the world are these guys now going to be calling to the mountains and the rocks to fall on them? You see, you've got you to be consistent in your interpretive. You can't go one way with one and another way with another. Just... Roll with me here for a minute. Humor me. I'm telling you, this is symbolic language. Now, the kings of the earth. Now watch. Let's list them. 
The princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, seven. Oh, seven! Don't you, don't you love this guy when he's writing? Seven. What is seven again? Seven is complete number. This is all the world. This is everybody. This is everybody on the earth. This is inclusive of everybody, he's saying. Everybody else. They will hide in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They will call to the mountains and the rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Interesting, the Lamb has wrath. For who, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who can withstand it? In other words, this is the day of the Lord, and God is judging, and we have no hope. You know, Leon Moore says this, In no place in this section is John trying to terrify the saints. He's using familiar apocalyptic imagery to reassure them and to give them the certainty that their God is over all. God is bringing his purposes to pass. And he will do so through, though it means that this world order and indeed this whole mighty universe will pass away. Now you think about what, the way Jesus talks. Heaven and earth may pass away, but my word abides forever. Listen to an Old Testament writer, Isaiah. says, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfeeling love for you will not be shaken or my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. So what is John telling us when he unrolls the scroll? He's basically saying this. We can be assured that God's kingdom is here. That God's kingdom has come. That God's kingdom is coming and is present among us. And it's coming to destroy the totality of evil in our world. So you say, well, how does that apply to me on a daily basis, Pastor? Well, as we pray the Lord's Prayer, which we're taught to pray, thy kingdom come. What are we really asking for? Well, what we are asking for is that which rightly belongs to our Lord will be His. We are asking for all of creation to surrender to Him, but the reality is that some of creation will be rebellious towards Him and will resist Him, and therefore we who are part of His kingdom will find ourselves in this cosmic battle, a great spiritual battle, with the forces of darkness coming against us. But we need to be comforted by the fact that our God is sovereign over all evil. God is in control of all of these things. So we need not ever live in fear. Hallelujah. I love that. And we need to understand that as we behave like our Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, we will prevail over evil. Isn't that beautiful? How many go? This is interesting, Pastor. Anybody learn anything today? You learn a little bit? Okay, let's stand. Yeah, I know this is a difficult book. It took me a long time. I'm, you know, it took me 40 minutes to explain this chapter to you. If you want my notes, email me. I'll send them to you. Okay? You can read them for yourself. I covered a lot of ground here. Why am I doing this? Because I believe that this book is designed to comfort us. How many think in a world that's going crazy like our world is right now, don't you feel a little more insecure all the time? You never know where terror is going to strike in our world today. How many feel that, you know, that the politicians are not the answer? See, some of you still think they are, but they're really not, folks. They never have been. 
I'm not negating them. I think that's an important role to play. I think we need good governance. I believe that. But I do not believe that government will ever overcome evil. I believe only the kingdom of God has that power. And I believe that when you and I live the way we should live, as you and I get on our knees in the morning and we say, Lord, I'm here to worship you. As chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation teach, I worship the Lamb. I worship the one who's sovereign over the world, the one who controls and allows things to happen or stops people from letting things happen. It's amazing. He's in control. I do not have to live in fear. Thank you, Lord. That I can pray, your kingdom come, and I know when I pray that prayer, God's kingdom is advancing. But I also am aware now that there will be people rejoicing as we come forward with God's kingdom. We will be liberating the oppressed. Amen. I love it. We're actually riding behind Jesus right now, liberating the oppressed. But how many know there were people opposed? And when people begin to, you know, rise up against me, and and as I'm doing good, they're speaking evil of me and harassing me and persecuting me, I can do my little happy dance. Woohoo! And you say, why are you happy dancing when you're being persecuted, Pastor? Because I know. What do I know? I'm bringing the kingdom. I'm bringing the kingdom to this world. And if there's no opposition to my spiritual life, then there's something wrong with what I'm doing. I'm not bringing the kingdom. And how many here say, you know, today, I want to bring the kingdom. I want to bring the kingdom. I want to be a a vehicle, a vessel. I want to be God used of you to bring the kingdom, to see people's lives set free from oppression and injustice. That's why I appeal to you. I said, come to this meeting. Let's try to save five people. Brothers and sisters are being persecuted. That's one way, you know. Or when we say, hey, let's sponsor an orphan. That's another way. I mean, there's so many ways of doing it. Or when I forgive my brother and my sister when they've sinned against me. That's another way. I can practice this every single day where I get the rights to lay down my rights. And I can become like Jesus. I'm bringing the kingdom. Amen. And I know in my heart of hearts and mind of minds, I know that this kingdom is going to win. And I know even if they take my physical life, they will not take my forever life, my eternal life. And I will walk with robes of white. I will be victorious. Amen? Lord, I thank you for the hope your word brings. I pray today that you will speak into our lives. This is not theory to be explored. This is a word of comfort and hope in a time of evil and terror and instability in our world. It's a message on how we should live our lives as your witnesses, your martyrs. That we are like you, Jesus, a lamb that's being slain. Rather than exhibiting a lion's power. We're exhibiting the very opposite characteristic. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.